Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This is to be our 259th consecutive episode, and our guest this time is Ellen David Friedman. Ellen has been a union organizer, primarily in Vermont, for nearly 50 years, where she organized scores of unions, coordinated contract campaigns and strikes, and built the left through helping to found and lead the Vermont Rainbow Coalition, Vermont Progressive Party, Vermont Workers' Center, and electoral campaigns of Bernie Sanders and other progressives, too numerous to name. Between 2005 and 2015, she lived in, now I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Guangzhou, Guangzhou, China, and involved herself actively at many levels of the workers' movement until being expelled by the National Security Police. Presently, she serves as chair of the Board of Labor Notes and devotes herself to building the class struggle pole of the resurgent U.S. labor movement. In short, Ellen is a remarkable person, politically committed, not for a brief span, but for decades on end. So, Ellen, welcome to Revolution Z. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you, Michael. How about if to start, and before getting into uh, current labor activism's importance and directions, which I'm sure we'll focus on, we address one pretty easy question and one that might be rather difficult, but has struck me of late as of considerable general importance. So first, what got you started in left and particularly labor activity? I cannot remember a time in my life <laughs> when, there, when I was not drawn by the profound underlying commitments of the left. Um, I, was, I was born in 1952, and um, despite, obviously, the, the chilling impact of the post-war anti-communist hysteria, the McCarthy period, uh, as a child and growing up in the 50s and 60s, wherever one put one's hands out or wherever one cast one's eye, there were ideas of vast social necessity for, for equality, for identifying and countering racism, um, misogyny, obviously the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the student movement that was largely anti-imperialist and anti-war all forms of the new communist movement there. And even just in broad sort of civil society, the center of gravity was in the direction of uh, equity and social goods, as opposed to the domination of the market, which has characterized uh, neoliberalism. So I, I felt like uh, I was, I was born to resonate with the historic chords of the moment and lucky enough to encounter many, many people during the way who helped fulfill that um, those expectations and hopes. You know, it, it almost leads perfectly into the second question, which I wanted to ask in any event, which is over the decades, you have, I am sure, known or just encountered a whole lot of people who have gotten started on the left, become active at one moment or another, uh, maybe in a strike or a campaign or perhaps a set of protests like Me Too or anti-war activity or climate activism or Black Lives Matter or whatever. And going back, of course, there were many more paths. Uh, 
and who have perhaps remained progressive or even radical, but who have not become passionately committed, multi-issue, multi-tactic participants um, like yourself, pretty much always prioritizing, contributing to trying to win change and indeed to win a better world. So I know it's a tough and perhaps even a somewhat unfair question, but, well, what do you think causes some people to get involved at some point, but so far, not very many, to become lifelong activism creators, organizers, planners, doers, and what causes other people to drift off or remain progressive, but at a very much lesser level of involvement? So to put it differently, we get spurts of growth. Right now, for example, around Palestine, uh, there's a big spurt of growth. But then how should we act so that all who come aboard stay aboard and exhibit steadily growing breadth and depth of commitment? Or finally, to put it more personally, what has caused you to stay fundamentally involved, committed, focused, and what instead caused others to, well, drift off? That is a, a, a glorious question because it leads us to think about <clears throat> the solution. A good question will do that. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to try and address some parts of it. I think I can start with the least important thing first. <laughs> and that would be, you know, some something about um, those things that we do not get to choose. Uh, the The moment in time that we are born, the family we are born into, what their values are, uh, our own personalities. I mean, where where do personalities come from? We, we certainly do not know the answer to that, but some personalities seem more inclined to one form of life activity or another. So, you know, all of those totally idiosyncratic, but but random, apparently random choices, what class are you born into, what, what race, what gender, um, putting all of those things aside, therefore, I would say that uh, for me, the critical elements are these. One, the opportunity to um, find, be invited into, or place yourself into environments where your dignity is being um, upheld, maintained and reinforced as you learn to do the work of organizing. And as we know from our respective experiences in the left in the 60s and 70s, that was not always the case. And sometimes it was, but not always. And it's very hard, I think, for people to, to, to learn to take risks or to make deep commitments in environments where their dignity is in doubt. You know, it's a very, if it's a competitive environment, if it is very judgmental, if it is filled with uh, cliques and uh, small groups, if it's filled with secrecy and manipulation and positionality, you know, those are not comfortable places to be. So um, I do think that is something we can control. We can try and shape our organizations, whether they are unions, as it has been for me, because my primary home has been in the labor movement for all these years, or in, in left political organizations, community organizations of any sort. <clears throat> so that's 
that has been a lesson that I, I hold very dear. And in my organizing, I try and take that seriously. The next thing, um, which we also get to control a bit, is whether or not we have exposure to and the opportunity to develop our critical thinking within an ideological framework. So I, again, felt quite fortunate that in the mid-60s, through older friends, when I was still in junior high, I think I began to be exposed to the basic Marxist canon and to begin to read and study with others long before I think I had the intellectual ability to master. But what happened for me was this notion that, oh, there can be an explanation for the world as I am seeing it, as I'm experiencing it, not, not only its abstract largest self, but its most immediate intimate self. There can be an explanation that allows me to feel grounded, that gives me the, the tools for confidently assessing my environment and then figuring out, is, is there something I can do about this environment? So for me, those tools were, um, you know, the tools of historical dialectical materialism. Again, learned, I was, I was lucky to be able to learn them in environments that were not um, always driven by a party line, which again is, is not a very respectful way to teach or learn. Um, I did decide for myself quite early on, um, I think in my sophomore year at college, which was 1971 or 72, um, having been in the SDS chapter at Harvard, where I was an undergraduate, which then folded, I think, sometime around then. And maybe I joined, I did join some other left sectarian organization briefly. Not sure if I remember what it was. Um, but in both cases, I thought, you know, I don't actually think this is going to help me either in my development of theory or my development of practice in the environment I need. So I have actually never joined a political organization I mean, a you know, left sectarian party organization since then, which is, you know, 50 years. Um, and I have never regretted that decision. So I've <laughs> always worked very closely with people in all stripes and in the labor work, of course, a lot with DSA in recent years with um, um, ISO when that was still a formation um, Solidarity, from which the founders of Labor Notes, uh, with which the founders of Labor Notes are associated, um, various more anarchist um, groupings, happily, you know, very happily, as long as people kind of behave themselves as decent human beings, uh, that's great and in, can enhance our movement. But I have felt um, I, I needed uh, to be able to feel unconstrained by dogma. And I, I guess the final, so I think that's useful for everyone. And I think the final thing are um, having access to the methods that help us develop critical thinking. And by that, I mean, in our, in our uh, modern history, the, the work and the approaches of popular education, of, for example, Miles Horton, 
Ella Baker, uh, Paulo Freire, or some of the main, you know, proponents. They're just profound. Those ideas are, are so damn profound, you know, and they're very simple. This approach to uh, how you help people, whoever they are, wherever they find themselves, to see, to see themselves within the system that is dominating their lives, to understand that they are in that system with others, then to see themselves as part of a collective with others for the purpose of transforming that system into a more liberatory world. Um, so I'm super grateful for those. And I think if you kind of put those few elements together, it helps people stay in for the long haul. No guarantees, but everyone that I know who has stayed in for the long haul and and uh, the upcoming generations who are now entering, I've watched them being transformed by some of these factors. Uh, I think we have a chance to build to build a, a steadier, stronger base in the left. I have to thank you for complimenting the question, but I also have to tell you that um, the answer was brilliant. So, <laughs> uh, and I think points to the opposite side of the coin. That is the features of what we've done or are doing that are impediments to people staying in and that need to be corrected. But I want to change gear to to what you've done a lot of your work on. So what do you think has caused the really uh, quite substantial, I think, spurt of labor activism that's now occurring in the U.S. and in other places as well? Yeah. First, we just have to say, isn't it fabulous? <laughs> people, yeah. <laughs> people of our age and our generation who were not absolutely sure we were going to get to be around for this moment. I certainly could not be um, more exhilarated. And it's one of the things about being an organizer for so long is that as simply horrific, horrible crises continue to erupt everywhere, the underlying and permanent crisis of uh, climate destruction, uh, of course, racism, deep exploitation of workers in every way. And as we know, the un unbearable, uh, unbearable grotesque events unfolding now with the uh, genocidal attack of the state of Israel against Palestine, the, we, we have to, you know, as engaged, hopefully compassionate and human human beings, we have to be deeply hurt and we have to, you know, do what, what uh, Papa Gramsci instructed us to do many decades ago, which is to have a pessimism of the mind, an optimism of the will about all of this. Um, sadness cannot be a reason to not uh, take a very uh, forthright, steadfast, um, and uh, impassioned attitude towards organizing. Sadness is not enough of a reason. 
Let me, let me interrupt before you go on to the labor part. Sure. You continued the last question in some sense. While you were giving the first answer, I thought of the same quote, um, <laughs> unsurprisingly, I guess. <laughs> uh, and I think you actually sort of demonstrated um, in the second answer part of why you've stuck with it. You can see the ills, you can see the dangers, you can feel the pain, but at the same time, and this isn't always true, I don't think, including at this current moment, at the same time, you can find the reasons for persisting, the reasons for optimism. I mean, you, you, when you opened up with, isn't it amazing to be at this moment with all this labor activity going on? I think there's a lot of people around who are instead saying, isn't it dreadful to be at this moment when, you know, it's all over, uh, there's no hope, and anything that looks like hope isn't. That contrast, you know, some would say you're insane. Others would say, um, you know, it's admirable. And that may be the difference. Yeah, you know, I, I often encourage people in my organizing work to, to not talk about optimism. Of course, when Gramsci has it embedded in that beautiful <laughs> quote, it's okay. But um, the quality that I think we are best served by in our organizing is not, is not focused on the need for a specific outcome. We, there's so little that we can do to control a specific outcome. Obviously, the balance of power and forces are so profoundly weighed against uh, liberation, against uh, uh, peace, a world at peace, a world of equality, a world of, of simply social sustainability. So the odds are so clearly opposed to that, we would be quite silly, in fact, psychotic, to have optimism <laughs> about the outcome. So what we have to be instead optimistic about is that any, anyone, anywhere can engage in organizing on the basic basis of profoundly uh, radical and liberatory values. Anyone, anywhere can. We, we know that, we see that, we hear those stories all through history. And, and millions of stories, of course, we will never hear from history, but that we know happened. And so again, in my in my organizing, even through all these extremely slow years of neoliberalism from the 1980s until the, you know, about 2010 or so, um, <clears throat> I was filled with a kind of steady sense of, you know, if that person who I talked to yesterday actually just calls me back next week to tell me, Yes, here's what happened in my workplace this week. You know, we talked about this idea. I had some questions. You made some suggestions. I went back and talked to my coworkers, and I want to tell you about it. Tiny incremental victories like that would fill me with complete joy. So this may be a question of personality. I, I don't <laughs> know. It's possible. but But that capacity to believe that what we do has value, that scale, of course, is important because of all the dragons we have to slay, but that since we don't get to just wish those dragons dead, 
we instead have to be um, fulfilled and we have to be encouraged to keep going at whatever level our victories can occur, including, you know, if we cut the dragon's toenails, that like that counts, right? There's, there's something there. Um, and so some of it is um, proportionality, ex- accepting, you know, that the, the big victories take a long time and a very strong base to build and seeing ourselves as part of that project. And some of it is just not being distracted. So in answer to the earlier question about why have you lost so many people along the way, I think my guess is you and I would agree there have been a lot of distractions in the last 50 years or so. (laughs) Uh, Neoliberalism has done a great job at um, confusing people about many things. Uh, confusing people, obviously, about consumption. We, we lost many people simply to the idea of recreating, you know, their, their lives as consumers in, in one fashion or another, because consumption is the byword of neoliberalism. Um, I have been um, very, very deeply concerned by the penetration of, um, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex, uh, the transformation of an actual movement into um, a form, a, a different form of consumption, a political com- consumption in which, you know, many unions and all kinds of well-meaning nonprofits have them recreated themselves with corporate logic where they've ended up with high, high paid executive salaries with uh, CEOs or directors of nonprofits or union presidents who see the organization as their organization, who use the resources as if it is their resources, who become imperial and autocratic at worst and just top down or bullying in order to maintain a sense of control. So the opposite of what we mean by bottom-up, mass-based, radically democratic participatory spaces. Unfortunately, many, many, many people have been lost to the left by wandering around in that sterile desert for so long. So anyway, lots of reasons that have to do with distraction. To the next question about, well, why are we seeing it now? in part is the ability of neoliberalism, I think, to offer all those distractions was what happened to the economy, you know, after the U.S. economy went to crisis and we began what I think we can now understand as the transfer of the center of the global, you know, capitalist project from the U.S. to China. And after China's period of economic opening up and reform in the 1980s, allowing this kind of bubble economy to develop here. So anyway, there was lots of resources floating around, mostly through debt. But anyway, keeping us quite distracted. And now, you know, the bill is coming due and people are really struggling materially. And I think that's 
part part of what has engendered this new period. I think it is too. But as I hear you, I sort of think back. In the '60s, were a time when there were distractions galore. Ah, um, right. <laughs> there were an incredible array of things to move people from any fledgling concern and fledgling with social justice, etc., into other areas that actually did offer some real fulfilling possibilities. And yet, uh, you know, there was the civil rights movement and there were other movements that then uh, blew up into the whole 60s phenomenon. So I think another factor, I'm not saying you're, the, the one that you're raising isn't an issue. It is, of course. But I think maybe another factor is some sense of efficacy, some sense of hope, some sense that there's a point to trying to cut the dragon's toes or seek a new world. I actually myself prefer the, the latter. I'm not really a dragon barger, bar, barber. But in any event, um, I think that other thing is a factor too. If I'm wrong, I'm wasting a lot of my time. But in any event, uh, uh, all, the, the real point to, ra- to point, come out of this is we do need to figure this out. It doesn't matter how long we operate. If we get a surge and then the surge bounces down to a trickle instead of the surge becoming a sustained project that can win, then we just go through an infinite array of bouncing around and, and not right. taking that step. And I, I think what you and I probably most profoundly agree on is that that is indeed, in many ways, the task of the day. Uh, yes, and it, it, it actually is a fabulous segue to something that I have only recently hit upon in in a clarified form, which is this. For many of us who work as organizers, whether in the labor movement or in other settings, for most of my adult life, the idea is that what organizers do is they build campaigns and they help get people involved in campaigns with the hopes of winning something. Obviously, political campaigns, a union election, a strike, trying to pass a piece of uh, legislation, right? But campaign-oriented. And so much of what has constituted the literature and the legacy and the practice of organizing throughout my entire adult life has been about that. Um, and that stuff is very important. So again, in, in the labor setting, which I know best, these fundamental tools of, well, first you have to identify your universe. Who are the workers in this workplace? Where can you get lists? How can you get contact information? How can you map where those workers are? What are their relationships to one another? and to the employer, and then all of the assessment activities, talking with people and coding them somehow as either being, you know, pro or anti, that whole art and science, and then how you get people involved in escalating campaigns, leveraging power, and so on. I I don't discount any of that. That's all incredibly important. 
we at Labor Notes particularly, and Labor Notes, I've, I've never been on the staff, but I have been a profound, the most profound of groupies of Labor Notes <laughs> um, since its birth in 1979. It has, for me, always been my North Star is how I think of it. This fixed point in the firmament um, where even when I was living in rural Vermont, there was no one else around. I was trying my best to figure out how to become a union organizer and I could get the magazine in the mail once a month and I felt like I could hang on for another month. It was, it was like that. Um, and, but so it, labor notes goal has been how to help do that in large part, how to help build fights and winning fights, meaningful fights um, but from the perspective of bottom-up democratic class struggle unionism and has done a fabulous job at that as well is one of the only projects of the 70s, certainly in the labor movement that has survived. It's really been Labor Notes and TDU, Teamsters for a Democratic mm -hmm. Union. Um, recently, last five years or so, I, maybe a little longer, I have really been rethinking a great deal of both how to organize, why to organize, and how to teach organizing. And I've been doing a lot of it and also writing some about it. And the Labor Notes editors asked me to write a book about organizing, which I'm doing now. And it's it is almost fully written. I don't know. It's probably about 80 or 85% written. And it was only in the last few weeks that I realized that the whole point of organizing, and now I'm going to have to rewrite some of the book along these lines, <laughs> is that organizers should help turn other people into organizers. That's what we have to do. It's not that we have to win campaigns, yes. Um or take on this or that fight or how to, all those things are important. But it is really, it starts with your first question. Yeah. How, do you, how do people come into the movement, stay in it for the long run because our organizations come and go, our unions come and go, um, you know, they come and go in part because of the changes in the economy, which we don't determine, you know, capitalism determines that. Um, so the coal miners union, you know, United Mine Workers at one time was, was you know, a, a stellar example of union democracy and the Teamsters have been and then weren't and then are again. And the auto workers was once, you know, led by communists and then weren't and are now led by really ser seriously pro progressive kind of class struggle oriented uh, leadership. So those things come and go. We can't depend on the existence of any organization or any party or any. We can depend on ourselves to develop as organizers so that we are ready to take up whatever history hands us and work it. So that's that's where I've come to. I wonder if what that means um, or includes in its meaning is. Um, that there's a goal. In other words, all those campaigns and those projects, and they have goals, but they're goals in the short run or in the medium run. 
and they're not a long run goal. And you can feel like, well, okay, I worked forever to win this intermediate goal, but it's going to roll back unless something fundamental changes. And that is true, actually. It will ultimately roll back unless something fundamental changes. So, you know, I've been of the mind, rightly or wrongly, that one of the things that has to exist, along with spirit and seeing the glass half full and and passion and, and the rest of it, is a vision, is something that goes beyond the campaign that you're working on and, and really even orients the campaign you're working on. So, you know, you're working for higher wages, but you have in mind, well, what's really the goal for income distribution and for the way people should be remunerated for their labor? Or you have in mind, you know, a degree of, of say in the workplace or in the industry. Well, what's really the goal for what kind of say people should have and that that can sustain you even as other things ebb and flow? And so when I look at my at people I know who have stuck and haven't stuck, that does seem to be a part of it. You know, that, and back, I, you were in the rainbow, when Ron Dellums would say, um, you know, give hope a chance. Um, Jesse Jackson, yeah. I took him to be saying that, that, that in other words, you had to have that, you called labor notes a, a lodestar, you know, a, a, a fixed point in the firmament. Well, this is another fixed point in the firmament, what we want. I mean, not that it isn't flexible and that we don't learn and refine it, but nonetheless, it it provides that continuity. So I've always thought, not I've always, well, I guess I have always thought that that was partly the case. Um, and it seems like it jibes with what you're saying. Uh, yes. And and so here's here's how I kind of think about this this question. Um, our generation, the, the baby boom generation, um, grew up both with ab- able to inherit and learn from essentially the common term, the, the experiments, the, the actual revolutions and the building of communist states in the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, China, <clears throat> Cuba, and, and at the same time, the complete discreditation mm-hmm. of those states and those theories. Like at the same time, it was a little crazy making. I think it took our generation a rather long time to try and make sense of any of that. I, I will only speak for myself. I had to go to China, which I finally did in 2005, and then spend 10 years there, which... Um, had many different reasons for it, but one of the things it, it helped me to really cement and understand is why state capitalism is not the same as our dream for socialism or communism. And, you know, easy, easy to say, but, but hard to analyze, to deeply understand, to face and to accept. And the whole question of, the state and what is the role of the state in socialism or communism? The deep, deep overarching questions, right? When we think about what is a vision we hold, what, what I 
found myself thinking and often saying to people is we cannot really answer that question until we have matured a bit in our ability to theorize the last 100 years, tr see if we can try to come to an understanding of what capitalism now means and does. Cer certainly, I think dialectical materialism is a fabulous tool um, for that analysis. But where it led the, the prior revolutionary projects is not is clearly not where we want to go. So what is it? It's not social democracy for, for reasons I'm sure I don't need to talk about or argue here. Um, and certainly I'm seeing in, in many of the youngsters around me and in myself, and I'm, I know this is a, the life that you have lived for many years, um, a very definite reorientation in the direction of something we have called anarchism, but we also don't know exactly what that means as a vision for actual existence at this moment or in the future. So I have a, a quite a respect for the long arc of history, including that I believe we are now shrugging off some of the deadening effects of neoliberalism are learning from it and are beginning to rebuild or build a notion of what a, uh, an economy, a political economy would be that is built on, uh, is not built on competitive markets. I mean, that's the most important thing, right? I, I don't know, private ownership, whatever we, <laughs> we will not get into that question, um, but at least to say uh, competitive markets do seem to be the source of much of our misery and their, their tendency to uh, concentrate and consolidate wealth and power. That, that has not proved healthy to the planet or human beings. So not that. And that what we're getting to experiment with is the practice of participatory democracy, for me, that has to happen at the point of production, so we can actually test it out. And it's fine to test it out in a in a book group or a community organization, but when you are wielding power and the potential for self governance at the point of production in a workplace, now you really have a chance of seeing do these ideas work and what do they produce. So I think we're very, very, very early days there. Um, but that's what is certainly capturing most of my attention. Uh, and I, I think that will give us, that will give us information about how we want to govern ourselves and what we can hope from governing ourselves in the future. Uh, I feel a little strange. I, I will be very interested, um, if you come upon participatory economics, participatory society, the kinds of stuff that, um, let's call it the part of the movement that I've been in, um, has generated to try and address some of these questions, both the historical questions, you know, the Soviet model and so on, even historical materialism, even, even the question of, well, is there something wrong in there that misled us from, 
focuses that we needed to incorporate and to include class, et cetera. So all this stuff, that will be interesting um, <laughs> when it happens, because I feel uh, great sympathy with, uh, y- you know, your sort of perception of of the world and your feelings about it. And yet there is this this other issue. You know, let me just say one more thing about it. Sure. We were, again, I, I know there's a, for obvious reasons, because of our age and the topic, we are bouncing back and forth between some of our understandings and interaction with the world in the 60s and 70s and the present moment. One of the differences that I'm seeing, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, is that we were really on fire um, about capitalism and about imperialism. It was totally central for us. I am rereading now the, the just marvelous book, Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, um, about the Detroit Revolutionary Union movement and auto workers union. Um, the, the level of uh, militancy, class consciousness, you know, this profound understanding of the relationship of imperialism to racism at home and to work labor exploitation was very, very advanced. Well, we're not, that, that is not present in, in, the, in, the, in the broad environment that they're working in which we're working. Um, but here's one thing that I am seeing now, which I wasn't seeing then, which does make me encouraged, which is um, the, the commitment to what we mean by actually existing union democracy. Uh, so much, much of what I do in my work and through labor <laughs> notes is, is work in this, um, what we call the caucus poll of the labor movement, where, you know, internal groups of union members form an opposition caucus to their often bureaucratic and business oriented union and try and change it, transform the union, shake things up. And I have come to believe strongly over, over many, many years that this is the most difficult work we can do in the labor movement for, for, because in part, how depressed people become when they realize that they have to fight both the boss and the yeah. union boss. And it's very destabilizing and discouraging and there's lots of obstacles. But if you master them, you're learning a great deal about um, democratic self-governance. So I just would say that in a lot of different kinds of workplaces, I'm seeing there's no big, deep understanding of deep understanding of capitalism, imperialism, all, you know, it's not a big ideological framework for many, many people, but they are very keen on this. Very, very interested in these ideas. And that's, I think that's important. I think it may be well beyond important. In other words, you described um, at one point that in order to make a leap into the future, to we had to sort of understand the past and understand the trajectory of movements, et cetera, et cetera. That's how I developed from, I think I'm five years older than you, from out of the 60s and through the next period. It was a, a look at past theory, past structures, past efforts, an attempt to understand why they 
didn't work. Um, they, they worked to a degree, but they didn't yield, as you said, what we really wanted. But nowadays, you described it as very different, and I think it is. And I wonder what you think of this as being part of the explanation for that. For our generation, and I'm, maybe even the five years as a generation, I don't know, but for our generation, I'll talk about the, the people I was a cohort with at the beginning. We went berserk. And the reason we went berserk was that it was revealed that everything was a lie. <laughs> yes. and, and we believed it, right? right. We, we right. had believed all of it. Right. Deep down, we had believed all of it, right? And so when it was all revealed as a lie, we were just fucking furious. That's right. You know, you all lied to us, right? That's right. And so, and I think then we pushed quickly to call it ideology and call it looking at the, you know, and so there was this focus on capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. Nowadays, and for a long time, mm -hmm. no young person could rebel at the idea that they had been lied to. Right. Because they never believed any of the lies. I mean, I don't think anybody believes any of the crap that's dealt with, you know, that I, I really don't think so. I think deep down inside, people know. Everything's broken. It doesn't work. And not only doesn't it work, it's disgusting. Yeah. So people know that, which can be totally debilitating, or it can have some virtues. And so here's where maybe we disagree a little. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's much, but, but a little. I think going forward from perhaps some time ago, to, and certainly now, it's possible to go forward based on the desires as compared to the critique. You know what I mean? In other words, based on, well, I want real influence. I want real control. And I think other people should have it too. I want well-being and other people should have. So in other words, instead of reacting to something that we're rejecting, seeking something that we desire. And I think that partly might explain what you describe in the workplace. People are starting to desire something, dignity, a sense of efficacy, a sense of actually having a say in what's going on. That's beginning to, to be the, you know, the, the, instead of negativity in some sense, which was another problem with our movement. We were so fucking negative about everything that most people who had good sense didn't want to come near us. But now it's different. And that gives me hope. Um, I I could not agree with you more. In, in fact, uh, I really think you've put your finger on uh, this this transformation that has been so kind of subtle and at the same time in front of our eyes, but it hasn't been called out in I think in quite the way you just have have identified it, which is almost every encounter I have with groups of workers who are trying to organize a union at present. Or they have a union, but it's horrible and they are trying to change it. Or they are workers who have absolutely no chance of ever having a union because the legal obstacles are too great. It's almost always the same. People will talk about uh, rent burden and that their health there's no health insurance or they can't afford it. But second breath will always be voice at work, respect, dignity, it yeah. cuts across everybody. You know, I, I don't know, 
I'm not sure that I remember this, but my guess is that that was not on people's minds. That was not on the tip of their tongues when they were trying to organize unions primarily in the 60s or 70s because there was there was such a presumption of that can't, that can't possibly be available to us. We, you know, we're, we, we have, we have figured out, well, for the elite workers, it would never be that. That is to say what we used to call the labor aristocracy. They were already getting a good deal, becoming the middle class, able to buy a home and send their kids to college. But for everybody below that was this, they, they were bubbling with a kind of, rage that you have described. And so you don't think to ask for dignity or voice from the monsters that are controlling your life. There was a very different formula there. You're, yeah. you, you want to kill them. Yeah. You, want, you want to slay them. Um, but anyway, so that is, that is quite different now. And one of the, well, all right, this brings us to a, to another topic, but in the world of labor, as we see so many new unions and, um, so many strikes and a real rise in militancy. Uh, one thing it is not changing for anyone is the sense of dignity or voice in the workplace. It is not doing that. In no. fact, if anything, the oppression, obfuscation, co-optation, retaliation, all of the things that are opposite of that is what is, is, what is growing. In, in fact, the whole the whole trend in the direction of autocratic bullying bosses, completely irrational policies, management policies, management decisions are worse now than they were before the before the pandemic. Hmm. Um, we're seeing it everywhere. We are not seeing any increment of movement in the direction of more humane or respectful or dignified workplaces. Micromanagement has really increased. Uh, cameras everywhere, surveillance. Even though there's a this tremendous labor shortage everywhere, workers are fired all the time for reason or no reason. Um, just as a, as a mechanism of keeping workers scared and under control, and they are very frightened. So I... You can talk with workers who have been in a workplace for 20 years and have, where there's been a union contract for 40 years and it has all the protections you could ever want to see. And, and they're, they're still terrified. scared. And they're terrified. Yeah. yeah. What's the, I mean, is there any change inside unions in terms of not the reaction to bosses and managers and so on? That's where you're seeing what you're describing. But I'm wondering whether you're seeing a parallel to that in the unions or whether you're seeing some motion in the unions that, um, and even in workers' sort of daily lives, that is more participatory, basically, you know, more, more towards, say, self-management or something. Take the UAW, right? I mean, what's going on in there? Is it just good demands? Is it just good rhetoric or is there a real new feeling inside the thing that, you know, will increase sustained participation and then sustained militants? Okay. <laughs> so um, maybe for this, the general answer I think would be 
unions that have had an internal transformation process going on as a result of a rank and file caucus, we are seeing some of those unions and we are seeing transformation in that direction. The United Teachers of Los Angeles, the Chicago Teachers Union, the Massachusetts Teachers Association, statewide um, affiliate of the of the NEA, of the National Education Association, um, Baltimore Teachers Union, the San Antonio Teachers Union. So those and others where the caucus has come into leadership, Richmond, Virginia. Are there other industries? You know, all right. So that's education teachers. So it's mo- it has mostly been teachers where the caucus movement has what been. What about spoken. nurses? Uh, nurses are not a very pretty picture. I'm sorry to say. Really? Yeah, I'm not going to take take to the air to criticize my, <laughs> my sister unions, but um, uh, it's a very different story there. So in hmm. K twelve education, the caucus movement has been the strongest. Put them aside for a moment because it's very particular conditions. And let's look at uh, Teamsters and the auto workers, the two leading major industrial unions. So Teamsters for Democratic Union founded at the same time as Labor Notes, 1979, by essentially the same group of people from the same political orientation has miraculously survived, you know, these almost 45, 50 years, 45 years. And um, they are in a very, very strong, probably in many ways, the strongest place they have been in this whole time. Their approach has been to build, to, to find people who are drawn by the idea of democratic unionism and class, you know, fighting unionism um, and have built during this whole period of time through finding individuals in locals, helping them to develop their leadership, build a base. Some of their locals, some uh, Teamster locals are led, of course, now by, t- by TDU slates and <clears throat> have been so committed, so steadfast, and so smart in their organizing, uh, and also taking advantage of the criminality, you know, of Jimmy Hoffa and the, you know, the whole dangerously toxic uh, leadership the Teamsters had for many years. Anyway, they they entered into a, a coalition slate that elected reform leadership to national leadership. Well, first they had to go through and establish the right of one member, one vote, uh, which is essential for democratic unionism, um, and achieved that, elected this reform slate, and have we, we saw their capacity to organize for what would have been a totally devastating and fantastic strike at UPS. and. Uh, didn't take that strike, but won very, very strong contract. They, since then, TDU has been getting lots of, you know, leads and inquiry, and they're continuing to build on their organizing. So they have the capacity both to build up from below. They have, a, you know, a deep, deep back bench of capable leaders and organizers all over the country. And they can fight local fights and in different sectors, not just in UPS, and also change things from above through their influence with the national leadership. 
UAW, quite a different story. Um, Although there have been various caucus and reform efforts in the United Auto Workers uh, since the time of the the Ruther brothers um, and their their sellout to anti-communism, et cetera, et cetera, and concessionary bargaining. So the, the overall direction of the UAW since the late 70s has been they stopped fighting. They engaged in concessions. As we know, then they engage very, very often in outright corruption and collusion with the employers. They certainly gave up any attempt to engage the members or you know, build a fighting base. They also kind of gave up the idea of organizing. They, they really did not come up with a plan to organize as the auto industry transformed. As we know, they have not been able to organize any um, foreign-owned auto plants in the U.S. There's been one catastrophe after another. So now, different attempts at caucuses failed. Finally, a few years ago, a group uh, got itself together, UAWD, United Unite All Workers for Democracy is their the name of their caucus, and went through this protracted process in which they helped to expose the corruption of the national leadership. As you know, people were tried and end up in jail. Uh, then they petitioned in, in the wake of that, many auto workers were appalled. And when UAWD said, we can't let that happen again, let's petition for one member, one vote. They did. They won it. They were then able to put together a slate, a UAWD slate with Sean Fain as its, as its presidential candidate. And quite shockingly to, to everybody, to all of us, they won. Now, they won and uh, Sean Fain was in a runoff, so didn't take office until March or April, something like that, was has, was barely in office. Other people assumed office before that, um, but barely in time to build up to the big three auto strike, which has just happened, the stand-up strike. Um, they did not have the benefit that TDU did of having a base almost mm-hmm. anywhere. They had like a handful of activists, really. Their values were so strong and so clear Sean Fain, I think, I, I don't know him personally, of course, I know many people that work around him, and there are lots of people in labor notes who uh, feel the same way, seems to be uh, the real deal. From a big distance, that's what it looks like. Everybody that I know that works has worked with him closely will say the same thing. Very principled, not a narcissist, not out for like personal control. Um these are important things, you know, in any, in any leader. And at a moment when it was pretty clear that if you could have a decisive turnaround event in the life of the union to rekindle the possibility of this union being an effective fighting union instead of a concessionary useless union, that it was a good time to do that. Because the auto industry, as we know, both with the electric vehicles, but just all, you know, it is still an important part of the uh, U.S. and international economy. 
it might be possible to really turn that into a pivot point. So um, their situation, they have done that. You know, this strike was astonishing, very, very powerful. It transformed both contracts, locals, and individuals. Like you could really see in the tracking of individual members as their awareness, their idea about, oh yeah, this is what a union could do and could be. It feels different. Now they have to go and build a base. There's many very hollow UAW locals all around the country still in the hands of either corrupt or just plain business unionists. Um, There are many locals that have have no stewards or have poorly trained stewards. They're, They're not in the practice of of fighting or even enforcing the contracts they have. So it's a big job, but um, it's the right job to do. And again, they're, they're touching a nerve for especially younger workers about the idea of, Oh, I, I, I could have a voice. I could have some dignity. I could have some shaping of the future, my own future. Um, So I think that's very powerful and we're quite optimistic. I had a question while it was going on, which I didn't have anybody who I could ask and feel like they were in a position to maybe know, but now I have somebody. So my, my, my question was, I thought it was going to go on for a long time, mm. the strike, because I thought um, it wasn't a commentary on the weakness of the strike itself, so it couldn't end quickly. It was a commentary on what I thought ought to be the attitude, given their interests and their, right, of the other side. We can't fucking lose this thing. And, <laughs> and you know, both from the, inside the auto industry, but perhaps even more so, pressure on them from outside. In other words, pressure from the whole rest of the economy saying, hold the line. You guys can't lose this. There's you know, it could, it could become something too big to, to throughout the whole economy. And so I thought that they would fight much harder than they did. And I'm wondering why they didn't. I I don't think I am the person who can answer that um, either. Uh, Do you think my incredulity was a bit (laughs) justified? Well, I will certainly say that I and many other people that I know shared this question and still share this question, you know, and there are pieces of the answer, uh, I guess. One is that there were some pretty unique features, very, very unique features. In fact, totally unparalleled in modern labor history of the strike of, of of playing the three employers off against one another at the same time. So that was, that was a pretty high stakes game. And um, they each had to have calculations about what was available for them to win or how bad their loss could be if they couldn't call the strike off, you know, if they couldn't settle the strike. Um, so I, I'm guessing that there's a, a big narrative about that, which those of us on, on the outside will, will never know. And maybe there are people in the industry that do, um, you know, I, I, my, my sense was just, again, quite, quite from the outside, but 
that there was a both a hunger and a capacity, and it certainly could have gone on longer from the union side. Yeah. I don't think there's any question about that. Right. Um, it is it is possible that there was some understanding that yeah, it could go on longer, but perhaps. It, we will not win in by extending it, you know, enough to justify what what could turn into a sort of disaffection and exhaustion. I I, I don't think that had started yet, um, but but of course I was not on the inside. It it could have been that that started. So yeah, I, I I don't know the answer to that. But the other thing I would say is that even though it was colossal, right? It was a big colossal event that captured everyone's attention you don't dig yourself out of a hole of 50 years making, you know, with a strike, right? And there are so many things structured around how the companies finance what they do, what, what is available, what are their calculations, how the market is behaving. Anyway, it, it may just be that this was a start, we hope. Do you think there's a future for the, uh, you know, 40 hours pay for 30 hours work? It's so interesting. This whole thing about um, the work, the work week, we're in a pretty crazy moment about that. I think, I think the answer to it is not simple. Um, one thing I would say is this, that there are in many industries we see, healthcare, nursing is certainly one of it, one of them. Manufacturing, it is also true. It's true in hospitality. I don't think it's so true in retail. Um, but anyway, uh, employers clear short staffing, understaffing is universal. It's, it's absolutely universal. There is not a sector that is properly staffed, I would say, based on my observations. And it's because, you know, you, you keep wages low enough People are desperate to make more money. So, of course, they're willing to work long hours and they're willing to work overtime and take extra shifts. And especially if they're frightened of the employer, which most workers are, if it's un- you're made to understand, you know, you take this overtime or, or you're done. Right. There are a lot of things that are forcing uh, workers into both wanting a lot of hours and needing a lot of hours in order to survive. So when you talk with working people who rely, including auto workers, I've had this experience, who rely on overtime pay, and you say, what would you think about a shorter work week? They'll say, hell no, I, I could never survive. So they have, they've accepted the idea of a low hourly rate and a lot of hours. So it, it may be that the hourly rate has to go up enough so that people can imagine they could live on it in order to then imagine not working so many hours. And then on the other side, you have, you know, whole swaths of the workforce that cannot get enough hours. People that work, you know, three or four jobs and try and piece something together because no employer will give them enough hours. And I include not only people that work at Starbucks, but uh, adjunct faculty and uh, screenwriters and, you know, actors and um, journalists. So it's, it, it's incredibly fractured and fragmented 
concept, I would say, within the larger labor market or within the, the whole labor market. It obviously has to be coupled. That is, as you drop, let's say, from 40 to 30 or 60 to 30, (laughs) whatever it is, right? You have to raise the hourly wage so that you're at least getting the full income you were getting before. And not only that, you have to increase overtime so that it isn't a simple solution. The employers, you have to have them them have to pay for the labor. But I'm just thinking that instead of functioning just for income, functioning for time and income, yes, um, might increase the willingness of, of workers to take the fight, you know, to take the risk because they not only get the income they want, but they get, they get it for less time and they can actually live a life. It's totally consistent with what people want and need. Want, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm yet seeing the signs that people have Move toward it. Yeah. You know, you, one of the things to build a, a vibrant fighting labor movement or left is a certain amount of confidence. And we don't have that in strong, it's in short supply, right? Yeah. Um, and to have the confidence that you just described, which is, yeah, I deserve more money and the time to actually live a life is not, is not there yet. Um, Remember the first question about people staying in and transferring yeah. and so yeah person who i used to live with used to think that it was confidence confidence is incredibly important but of course not bravado not not false no, confidence right, right. <laughs> um, and and again i think confidence has so much to do with with what you can learn about yourself and your coworkers or comrades in an environment of dignity which you will not get in the workplace under capitalism at best, there might be like some false illusion of, you know, play, play acting at dignity. But so it has to be in the spaces we create in our movement. But I, um, again, we all only get to see parts of everything. But the part that I see shows me we are, we are developing. And, and I, I credit Labor Notes a lot with this. It has always been really founded on this principle of it's open. It is non-sectarian very respectful. We rely entirely on the actual lived experience of workers, rank and file workers in their struggles in the workplace. And we elevate those, you know, in the magazine and our books and at our conferences, you know, that's dignified. And I think people that come in through that kind of environment, obviously not just labor, labor notes, but those with those elements have a chance of staying in for the long haul. We're setting a record for duration, but the trouble is I have a bunch of things that I want to explore. So I want to wonder if, if you could right. uh, agree to do, no, I th- I, I'm, I'm not sure how long people will want to, oh. but we could do another one. Of course. Um, for example, do you think you have things to offer, so to speak, on Trumpism and workers? And on the flip side, one kind of reaction, you know, Hillary Clinton's basket of monstrosities or deplorables, and what the healthy side of, you know, that is to say, how does the left at this moment in time not only keep people and produce, produce organizers, but how does the left talk to people who are enamored of or feel enamored of MAGA? Um, 
are getting something from it, which I think is a sense of efficacy and and actually dignity and you know a feeling of being part of something much more than it's Trump's politics or or even racism. So I'd like to do another round if you're if you're game in which we address some of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm absolutely this was this was a lot of fun and I, I love the idea of just sharing ideas together, thinking stuff through. So I'd certainly be more than happy to do that. You know, I'm not sure how much I would have to say about that because in a, a lot in my in my organizing work, what I've mostly spent time doing with people is saying, look, the goal in the workplace is to talk to your coworkers and find things that you have in common. So if you disagree about COVID vaccines, don't fight about that. Don't talk about that. If you disagree about masking, don't talk about that. If you disagree about return to work, if you disagree about Trump and Bernie, don't talk about that. Make relationships on the basis of what you share. And of course, agreement is going to stem from what you share. But rather than go on, uh, given how long we've gone, and saving material for a a second round down the road a little, um, I think maybe we can stop here. And so thank you very much, really, for for doing this. It's been uh, a really good session, I think. And that said, this is Mike Albert signing off until next time for Revolution Z.